If you're a senior executive looking to transition to boards, check out our Fast Start Guide to Board Success. In this short guide, we'll answer all of your questions about landing a paid board role and we'll share some of the rookie errors executives make when trying to climb the board ladder. Jump on our website, boardcoachinginstitute.com.au or click on the link in the show notes to access your free copy today. If you're looking for board success, let us show you how. And I thought, why? Why do women need all this help? I didn't understand or I didn't appreciate the inequity or the barriers as a young woman in the workforce at the time. And it wasn't until I got further along in my career and I started supporting women in their careers that I started to really see the invisible obstacles that women faced, even if they thought the playing field was even, even if they thought they were in charge of their own careers, there were still things that we've inherited from systems in the past that make it more difficult for women to succeed in the general corporate landscape. Hi, I'm Sally Parrish, Amazon best-selling author of The Essential Field Guide for Company Directors and founder of the Board Coaching Institute. I've been in, on and around boards for over 20 years. And if you, like me, are passionate about the boardroom, then this podcast is for you. And I'd love you to join me on this mission to decode board success. What is it that sets some non-executive directors apart from the rest? How can you enhance your leadership skills so you can be highly effective in the boardroom? And what will it take to make board success a reality for you? I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I love making them and that they unlock the secrets for you to gain a competitive advantage and have massive impact and influence in your board roles. Let's get started. executive coach Annalie Blundell. She's an award-winning expert in communication and human behavior, an equity advocate and a part-time jigsaw puzzler. As some of her clients refer to her as the people whisperer and she truly has a knack for holding up the mirror and helping people to see their true selves. She's got a fabulous body of work that she's been building and developing over the last 20 years or so and today we're here to talk about her fifth publication the gender penalty welcome Annalie it's great to have you on the show today hey Sally always a pleasure to get to chat with you so my first question is the gender penalty the book how did it come about and what is it about well I've been running women at work programs for the last six or so years and you know I started my business over 17 years ago but more recently the interest and attention in gender equity as you would appreciate has really catapulted this to the forefront and so in running the women at work programs and also doing executive coaching with both men and women I've become really present to the issues that women are facing in their career journeys and you know interestingly I was never a feminist, an advocate. I didn't think women needed help, to be honest. You know, when I first started my coaching journey, people would say, what do you want to specialize in? And I'd say, oh, I don't know, just anyone who breathes, I guess. And yeah. and other people would say, I want to coach women. I want to empower women. And I thought, why? 
why do women need all this help? I didn't understand or I didn't appreciate the inequity or the barriers as a young woman in the workforce at the time. And it wasn't until I got further along in my career and I started supporting women in their careers that I started to really see the invisible obstacles that women faced, even if they thought the playing field was even, even if they thought they were in charge of their own careers, there were still things that we've inherited from systems in the past that make it more difficult for women to succeed in the general corporate landscape. So, you know, I looked at the literature out there and I I realized there were two schools of thought at the time. And that was books, publications, programs to support the development of women, i.e., rah, rah, come on, ladies, you can do it. Here's how to build confidence. Here's how to be a better leader. Here's how to be better. And the other camp was stop focusing on women, stop fixing women. There's nothing wrong with women. We need to start addressing the system. And this is where we get marches for justice and things like that and legislation where we're trying to change the social structures that keep women in minority spaces. And so when I looked at these two, I support both. I'm having daily conversations with women that say, I don't feel like I'm in the right place. I'm being overlooked. I'm being ignored. I'm being cut off in conversations and in meetings. I'm having my ideas, you know, stolen. And so women need help in the moment but they also need help to change the game in the long term and so this book is an homage Sally it is an homage to both of those lenses and I use the metaphor of the game to help explain what's going on work is a game built by men for men from yonder year when women weren't involved in the playing you know they were supposed to be at home they were at home And so all the structures and the systems and the cultural understanding around how to win the game of work come from an era when women weren't on the field. And women typically play the game of work like they're in a classroom. And I use this sporting analogy, sorry, this analogy that they are in the classroom and they do good work, they work hard, they do their homework. And when they do a good job, they automatically get bumped up to the next level. That's how classrooms work. It's not about who you know. It's not about political game playing. You don't have to put your hand up and say, pick me. You just do good work. But we know that good work and being good at your job is not enough when it comes to success in the workplace, particularly as a minority. Men, on the other hand, see work as a sporting game. They're on the sports field. You know, it's about being picked by the coach. It's about being seen to be the best player. It's about playing full out, you know, getting dirty, wrestling hard. And then it's cheers, beers after the game and everything is back to normal the next day. So we have to understand that women don't need help to be better leaders. They need help to navigate a leadership landscape where the game they are playing is not the one they've been conditioned to play since childhood. I love that analogy around the classroom. And I think, you know, those skills work so well for women early in their careers, you know, working hard, excelling, applying yourself, doing well, it gets you noticed, right? So it starts off working for you, but then it's 
some point in your career, it starts working against you. Have you found that there's a typical point in time when it no longer works? When women start having families or take on carer duties, either caring for elderly parents or elderly relatives or caring for young families, they can no longer be the 24-7, always available, always ready worker. And when you don't fit the 24-7 performance model, it's much harder to succeed. Visibility is, is very closely linked to success. If I can't see you, I can't value you. And therefore, if you're working part-time, you're harder to remember, harder to notice. Granted, COVID was in some ways a blessing for the focus we now put on the importance of flexible work, right? So we understand flexible work is good for humanity. It's good for everybody. We can get more done. We can have people who are more productive in their own personal preferences, i.e. if working from home suits you better, that's great. We're going to have the same level of productivity, but it also works wonderfully for women or people, parents who have those caring responsibilities because they're more able to juggle their life outside of work. Women have two jobs, make no mistake. When they have families, they have two jobs. They are the CEO of the house and the children and the child wrangling and all the stuff that comes along with that. And also the housework, that is right, the housework. So we're doing a lot on the home front. This is what the research suggests, but we're also trying to lead full-time career lives at the same time. Yeah, I've got a couple of comments on that. Like as a woman in business myself, even if you split all of the household chores, the child raising chores, if you split them 50-50, there is still a huge amount of thinking and planning and organizing that goes on before the execution of those things. So even if we split the chores, I'm still thinking about, well, it's that kid's birthday in six weeks time. And we, you know, we've got relatives coming on that date. So I still have that burden, even if the chores are divided. Look, the reason that I really wanted to get you on this Board Success podcast was around why this topic is so important in the boardroom, right? It's easy to think that this is a woman's problem. It's easy to think that this is, you know, an organization's problem. But why is this such a relevant topic for boards and for organizations as a whole? Well, we need to tackle it from a number of different levels, if you like. So sure, at one level, it's important for women, (laughs) right? As a minority group who is on the receiving end of these invisible obstacles or biases or barriers or whatever, of course, it's important to you as a woman. Yes. So if you are a woman on the board, this will be important to you, understanding these penalties, educating yourself around these sorts of books and resources to know how to navigate a landscape that wasn't set up for your success. So that's the obvious level. But the conversations around boards, it's the next level is if you are a board member, you are in charge of the culture, the health, the productivity, the results of an organization. So you need to be across the fact that this is going on in your organization. Um, We've had some lots of conversations recently. We know the government is paying a lot of attention to this here in Australia. We've had legislation around being more transparent around things like gender pay gap. So it is coming. It is coming to the forefront 
quicker than ever and it's requiring boards to not only understand the issues but just not just be aware of them, not just be in agreement that we need to be doing something but to be taking action. And I mean structural action. One level is, yes, how do we support the women? I run women at work programs. You know, there, I know there is an appetite for investment in how to support women to help themselves to navigate this landscape, as I mentioned before. But there's also investment that needs to be made around inclusive leadership, around how do I act as a leader in increasing my level of awareness around these structural inequities. So for example, at an individual leader level, so it's not about you know men and women, it's about how do I value all voices, I would say simple things you can do are things like if you're running a meeting, you make sure that every voice is heard. So one of the issues that women face, and you could be thinking about this in the context of the conversations you're having at a board level, yeah. knowing this exists, you can be doing something right now for your immediate conversations as well as understanding what do we do with this from a intervention-wide, you know, approach through the organization. But just in the conversations we have in the boardroom, knowing that women are more likely to be talked over, ignored or interrupted when they speak, that we need to add simple things like a structural change that says we hear from everyone before we make a decision, right? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but if you don't, it's the simplest thing to pick up and it will ensure that everyone's voices are valued equally. The next thing is, so just so it's the women's aspect, it's your personal leadership aspect, but it's also your responsibility as the board, not just from a legislative approach. And make no mistake, that legislation is only going to increase. I wouldn't be surprised if we've got targets coming in and, and a lot more accountability as a director in how we are approaching the DEI space, particularly when it comes to women. So there's going to be legal requirements around this, but all of that is a strategic level of thinking. Where I come from is the interpersonal space because for me, it doesn't matter what you believe. I know you believe in equality. I know you believe that everyone should be valued equally and we all have access to equal opportunity, but it's more important to me to ask yourself, how am I behaving? Am I making space for that voice that doesn't seem to get a, a word in? Am I amplifying the voice of a minority who keeps getting cut off and interrupted? Am I noticing that that other person never gets a word in or when they do, they get interrupted and nobody comes back to them? Am I an ally in that moment? Yeah, I love that. And it's how can I understand the rules and play by them? How can people understand that these different rules exist and how to make that fair for everyone? And what can we as boards do in an organization to ensure that we're creating opportunities for equality? I just want to go through some of the key concepts in your work. So first of all, let's talk about equality and equity. You know, sometimes those words are used interchangeably, right? But they are different things. So how would you define equality and how would you define equity? So for me, equality is the aim. It's where we're headed. So the goal is equal opportunity or equal access to opportunities and resources. Yep. So everyone can go for this job. Yeah. Yeah. So you do not get excluded from applying for this job because you're a woman, etc. So access to equal opportunities and resources. 
equity is around giving unequal support, i.e. maybe some more support to those who need more support so they are better situated to access those opportunities. So for example, anyone, male or female, anyone in between, anyone on the spectrum can apply for this role. But if I say we need 10 years experience for you to be able to apply for this role, but we want equal opportunity for everybody, but you've never had women in that role in this organization ever. So no woman has ever been able to get 10 years experience in that. I'm never going to get access to that. Yes. Even though you say everyone's invited, but you're never going to pick me because I can't demonstrate that background. Can't meet the criteria. And you have a really great analogy that not only explains the difference between equality and equity, but it helps people who don't really understand whether equity is there or not. And use a shopping analogy, right? Yeah, well, what I found was that I was having lots of conversations with men around that they were quiet, Sally, quiet corridor, private conversations, asking me questions like, you know, I believe in women, I believe in equality, I want to be an ally. But just between you and me, Annalie, I'm not sure I really understand mm, yeah. well, it's the problem. You know, I sit with my colleague, we went to the same university, same degree, we've got access to the same jobs, and if I get the job and she doesn't, I don't understand how that's a problem. And so, and I can't ask this question of her or anyone in the workplace without feeling like I'm going to be accused of being sexist or not being a supporter. So I'm grappling with really getting an understanding as to what are the impacts when I as a man am not experiencing those impacts and I don't know how to ask for it. And I say, when men are not bad, this is not men against women. It cannot be men against women. It has to be all of us as a society against the structures we've inherited. Yeah. But one way to make it easy for people to understand and to really liberate men from this potential guilt around Sometimes I don't think it's as bad as people are talking about and I'm not sure what I'm not seeing point of view. I liken it to the idea of going shopping. So you've got a tall shopper and a short shopper and they both go to the supermarket. They both have $100 to spend. That is equal opportunity. They have $100 to spend. The tall shopper walks up and down the aisles grabbing anything they want from any shelf because they can reach all the shelves. They go in, they go out, they've spent their money. The short shopper goes into the shop and they can't reach the top shelves, right? Equity, this is an equity issue. I'm allowed to shop from the top, but I just can't reach it, so I need more help. So I encounter invisible obstacles as part of this exercise. That means I either have to take an inferior product, take a more expensive product down on the lower shelves. I have to wait and get someone who walks past with long limbs to help me get So I've experienced obstacles that the tall shopper is not really, you know, present to because why would they be? They're they're tall. They They wouldn't know, yeah. Wouldn't even know. Yeah. I talk about men having a blinkered experience just like a tall shopper has a blinkered experience. They walk out of the supermarket. You look across at my shopping basket because I may or may not be five foot two of nothing. So I have this experience. You look across at my basket and go, we have the same goods. We spent the same amount of money. Where is the inequity? I can't see it. Yeah. And I go, of course you can't. It's not until you as the tall shopper take your 
Aunt Betty or your Uncle Joe, you know, reach the top shelf and you think, oh, gosh, lucky I'm here to help you. Yes. Yes. You wouldn't be aware of it. So I love that analogy because that really helps us understand because I think I think we've talked about equality for a very, very long time. And I think we feel like we're moving towards equality, but equity is the mechanism to get us all there, right? It's the steps that we need so that we can achieve that. So what we're asking for is for businesses to be more aware in the equity stakes, what do they need to put in place to ensure that everyone has access to those equal opportunities that they are supposedly providing yeah and i think we you know we've done some really really great work in this space but i feel like there's a lot to be done and i think every time we put an equity step in place it kind of hinders those that didn't need the equity step so if we look at uh, the composition of male and females in the boardroom we know that there are far too many boards that are male only yes. we know that there are a disproportionate amount of females to males at non-executive director level and we brought in quotas and we said okay so we've got to have one female on every board and for one that doesn't help the female that lands the role who believes that she's there because they needed a female rather than they took her on for her skills so you know, sometimes that can lead to a confidence issue. Sometimes that can lead to disrespect from her peers who think that she's there because she's the woman. We've seen CEOs that, yes. you know, where we've had female targets and we put a female CEO in and it's, oh, she's just there because she's a woman. And that woman then doesn't get the respect of the organization, ultimately fails in her role. And that proves the point that women aren't good CEOs, right? So sometimes they can perpetuate yeah. some of this inadequacy and equity but we have seen quotas and like them or loathe them they can go against the males right so I have male clients that find it harder now to get onto a board because they feel like they're you know they're of a certain age a certain color and that they'll be disregarded now because they're not female so I think we have to be really careful what i love about your work is how you've identified five key areas five key concepts of gender penalties and i think this is a really great framework for anyone who's trying to understand so that they can do better in this space what are the five key gender penalties that you've identified in the book before we jump to that sally i just can't let your last comment go without adding my own piece sure (laughs) it's just too juicy (laughs) so I really think the listeners will have this front of mind because it's not only your clients who are talking to you about this idea of are men going to be disadvantaged that's really what we're talking about here right? yeah yeah and I think it's a really juicy conversation and, and I'd love to add some fodder for our thinking around this so for the women I would say if you feel like your agenda a quota appointment like literally, if you feel like you're just there because you're a female and you're ticking that box. So they call that the token appointment, Annalie. Correct. Yeah. Correct. You are the token appointment. Yeah. Whatever level, you're the token appointment. I say don't take the job unless you know you can do it. And if you know you can do it, just go ahead and do a damn good job. Because if you prove yourself and do the good job, that tokenism will just fade away. Yeah. It won't matter after a while, right? 
if you are a token appointment and you don't think you can do the job, don't take the job because yeah. <laughs> that is all sorts of drama. So don't do it. Yeah. That's for the females. For the men, this one's really tough, Sally. You know, let's call it as it is. It's really tough. It is why I address it in this pocketbook when men lead women. I talk about the idea of does more opportunity for women mean less opportunity for me as a man? And the answer is yes and no. Let's be really frank about this. And it really depends on how you look at it. It depends on what opportunities, other opportunities you feel you have access to. So if you look at it just from a black and white perspective, if you were going to go for a role as a, you know, middle-aged white man, let's say this is now the group that is feeling more disadvantaged and I understand why. If you in the past would have gone for a role and you know you would have been likely to get it and now you're not even putting your hat in the ring because they are literally asking for a female so you know you won't even get accepted, your reality is, yes, it is a zero-sum game and you've lost, right? There's no denying that. Yeah. You had it, now you're not going to get it. I get that. However, if you leave it at that, it is always going to feel like an injustice, right? Yeah. And we know that this is going to be a reality for a lot of men and we will, we will need to address this. So we can look at it as an injustice or we can look at it as an opportunity. You might go, all right, this is not the path for me. What else can I be doing? Maybe it's time for me to become a mentor to people on boards. Maybe, you know what, I've always wanted to start my own blah, blah business. Maybe that's time for you to do that now. But men are going to have to start thinking outside the box because they're linear previous career trajectory is no longer as certain as it once was. Now, let's investigate that for a minute. That is exactly how it's been for women. So what if we really think about this, and I want to get clear, if you feel like you don't have access to that job that you always had access to, women have never had access to that job. Yeah. They weren't on the shortlist. They didn't have enough experience. They were overlooked for that. So they have felt... For hundreds of years, how you now feel in this one moment, i.e., I'm not going to get it because I'm a man. Women have been saying I'm not going to get it because I'm a woman for hundreds of years. Yeah. All that's happened now is you're not missing out more. You are experiencing greater competition. You only competed against men like you in the past because that's that's who got those roles. And now we're saying we need to make space for women as well and actually For an instance of time, not forever, this is where we hit equity now. For an instance of time, we need to let more females through if we truly want diversity of thinking and experience and background because we need men and women both. Yeah. And right now, the only way to balance that out is to actually proactively get more women in so that we can start from the even playing ground because we know that if we just, if we let it take care of itself, we we know this from countries like Norway that if we just say we just ask people to put more women on and to be more balanced it doesn't naturally happen without the push of targets or quotas or some extra mechanism to it's some positive discrimination to shift the balance now this is going to be hard to hear I get that it's going to be hard to take for some men because again the reality for them is that's all good Annalie but I don't get that job and I say, yes, yes, and I'm sorry that that will be the reality for some of you. And 
that has been the reality for women for hundreds of years. Yeah, I say that not that men can't get seats on boards anymore. It's that they've lost that automatic entitlement. That's it. And they now need to compete for those seats like women always have had to, right? So I feel like there is equality and equity coming. I think we're probably 20 or 30 years away from it, in all honesty. I don't think this is something that's going to happen really quickly. But as we see more women on boards and those uh, we've already seen statistics to show that there's impact on the bottom line when there's diversity on board so we know that it works we know that it creates value it's about getting that balance right so that we're not appointing women for the sake of appointing women like if you can't find a great female candidate for the role I say appoint a man, as long as you did look for a female candidate, you know, by all means, appoint them out. You've got to do the best job for the organization. And to that point, Sally, I've got organizations that I work with that are really committed to gender equality and they do exactly that. Like I've had CEOs say, I want a female in this role. We really need to start getting serious about this. I want a female in this role. They've waited a year, a year. Yeah. And they can't find them. And they cannot find them and so they will appoint a man. And so this is, and it's not to say that, you know, they're just getting the second best because they'll just take it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You can play this from any side of the card. But what we're saying here is you have hand on heart really put in an effort. Like you've really, really put in an effort. And this one, it didn't work out, but it's not from lack of serious commitment to equity. Yeah. And that's not to say either that there aren't great women for those roles. It's just that you can't find the right fit for that opportunity that you've got. Let's talk about those five key concepts, the five gender, to four with my fingers then, five (laughs) gender penalties. What are they? So the penalties are the invisible obstacles that women face in their career trajectory in the game of work. So it's often things that women are given as career advice, the things that they need to do to be seen as leaders and to be able to advance in their careers. But when women try and do it, they get hit with a penalty because what's happening is to be seen as a leader is different to be seen as a lady. And there's two roles that we play in life as women. We have to fit the gender box. So we have to be ladylike, nurturing, supportive, helpful, humble, caring, all that. That's our feminine stereotype. But to be seen as a leader, you need to be bold and strong and decisive and authoritative and all these other characteristics which go against the female gender stereotype. So the conundrum for women is you're either seen as leader-like, but you're violating the gender norms as being a female, or you're seen as a female, but you're violating the norms of being seen as a leader. So for women to get ahead in their careers, they need to know how to navigate the double binds that come about through these penalties. So the five penalties that I cover in the book are confidence. So women are told they need to display more confidence. They're two and a half times more likely to be given that feedback. And the issue here is women are socialized to be humble. They're socialized to be modest. We don't like women being overly confident when women are too confident they're labeled as arrogant so that's the backlash that if we you know move outside of our gender norm and try and take up what's required in the leader norm 
of being confident, that's where we get the backlash. Communication is the second penalty. So women are conditioned to communicate in ways that are amenable, are community-based, elevate others. We have ways of connecting that we want to support other people in conversation. We want to make time and space for people when they speak. So women make space. Men are socialized to take the space, to take the spotlight, to elevate themselves, to expect ritual debate and opposition. And so the way we're conditioned to communicate, women tend to take a step back and men tend to take a step forward. And all of a sudden we're two steps apart and men end up dominating the conversation most of the time. So women report being talked over, interrupted, ignored, all that sort of stuff. The third penalty is around boasting. And this is that women need to self-promote. You need to showcase. You need to speak about your strengths or no one will know what you do, Annalie. You need to tell people what you're great at. Uh, Shoot me now. No one wants to boast. And I say this is also for most people in Australia, (laughs) culturally taboo to be a tall poppy in this country, but especially so for women. So women, we do not want to self-promote. We do not want to brag, but the, the conundrum for us then, the double bind, is that we remain invisible. The fourth penalty is around strength. We're told if we want to be seen as leaders that we need to be assertive, we need to be strong, we need to be decisive and bold. But we get then labelled as aggressive, Mm. as difficult, as a ball breaker, right? So the same action that a man takes, if a woman takes it, she gets seen in a negative light. This means that women don't say no as much. They're not pushing back as much. They're lumped with what we call the office housework. Women are 40% more likely to be given or volunteered the office housework. You know, the birthday cards, the meeting notes, the minutes, the coffees, the offsite lunches, all that sort of stuff. And the final penalty is around motherhood. So when women start families, they're seen as less committed When men have families, they're seen as more responsible. Now they're a provider. Now they're the breadwinner. They have to be responsible because they're providers. Whereas women seem like they're flaky, they're less committed, they're going to commit to their family, they're not as serious about their career because now they are a mother. And it is heartbreaking because I can't tell you how hard mothers work to stay top of mind, to be seen as future contributors in an organization because they know the value that they're sitting on but they know it's a moment in time that they can't be as available as they want to be but it does not mean they are any less capable and they can't win because they're at work and feeling guilty that they're not at home and they're at home and feeling guilty because they're not at work right they just can't win I love those five because to me that really starts helping us understand as a society why there aren't more women on board. And it's not because there aren't enough opportunities out there. It's because of what it takes to win a board appointment. And that is one, you've got to have the confidence. And we know that women will seek assurance that they can do a role before they'll apply for it, whereas men will give it a go. So Women are very reluctant to just throw their hat in the ring, just apply, you know, just see what happens. And we often find that, you know, if if I interview male non-executive directors and ask them, how did you get your ball break? Well, it's kind of funny because I was, and it kind of happened, right? Whereas for women, they've got to be absolute sure and certain that they're not making a fool of themselves by applying for the role. The second thing is they've really got to toot their horn and 
I can't express strongly enough how loudly they got to toot that horn to cut across <laughs> all the noise out there, right? You have to be really boastful right. about what you've done in your executive career to showcase the potential that you have at board level. So a lot of these things don't come naturally for women. And that's a lot of the work that I do with my clients. And I work with males and I work with females. And the work I do with males is really showing them that they've got to compete more to win these roles. And the work I do with females is showing them that they've got to compete more to win these roles, right? But how right. they compete is very, very different. So I think that those penalties that you talk about there, I think they'll be quite revealing. I think we've talked about that motherhood gap for many, many years. We've never called it a gender penalty as such, but we've always always known that it's difficult. It's difficult to be a mum and a leader at the same time. It's difficult to be in two places at the same time. Yeah. I love that. But I was going to say, can we just, we've got a few minutes left, but I really want to home in on that communications piece because this I think is really important in the boardroom to understand how females communicate and how males communicate so whether that's interboard relations or whether it's the exec team presenting to the board what are the different styles or stylistics of those communications so we know that the way we are conditioned to communicate right from the get-go, like right from early childhood is different for men and women or boys and girls as it were. So girls are conditioned to play nice, to be nice, to be amenable, to share the spotlight, to elevate others. You'll see this ritual happen all the time, Sally. Someone says to a woman, oh, I love your dress. Yeah. <laughs> she goes, oh, this old thing. Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's old. It was in the back of the cupboard. It's no big deal but I love your blouse. You look amazing. It's As soon as the spotlight comes to me, I want to shine it right back on you and out yeah. you, right? That, that is that we all know this. This is the yeah. rule of women interacting 101. That is how you play the game as a female. And whereas, and what part of the conditioning also is this ritualized need to apologize Oh, I'm sorry, can I just ask a question? Sorry, can I interrupt you for a moment? Sorry, I'm not sure I really understand what point you're trying to make. And it's this idea of we want to save face for other people. We want to be accommodating and it's really important to us that we elevate others, that we are not elevating ourselves over others. Men, on the other hand, conditioned as boys from early on to take center stage, to take the spotlight. Like it's who can tell the funniest joke. Who can do the most daring deed? Who can, you know, <laughs> who can win over all the other boys? And and who's the leader? And who's the top dog? So it's this competitive ritualization yeah. and of boys. And it comes out in the communication. Who's the funniest? Who's the loudest? Who's the quickest? Who can be the most daring and bold? And it comes out in ritualized opposition. So a guy will feel free to throw out 10 ideas and nine of them are absolutely ridiculous and way out there but one might be amazing but he understands it's part of the game you chuck all the ridiculous ideas out there and you wait and expect for your colleagues to go oh bob really that old oh that's not going to work you know that's not going to work don't be so ridiculous and you have a bit of a laugh and you wrestle a little bit more and you know that's part and parcel of the game women don't understand that game 
I have women tell me all the time, I have to wait, I have to be perfect, I have to be really prepared, I have to know that this is going to be a really great idea because if, when I send it out there, they're going to ask me questions about it, they're going to you know, ask me to explain or they're going to come back at me and I'm going to feel like an idiot. And I say, that's part of the game. It's part of the game. Yeah. Your job is to also throw them back and, and wrestle with the ideas and know you are going to be challenged. Now, something aside to that, we also know that women are challenged more than men are. So men expect ritualized debate. We want to wrestle with the ideas. We expect opposition. But women are also asked to defend, justify, and explain more than men. So there is a sense that women aren't believed. They have to work. They do have to work harder. They do have to prove themselves more a lot of the time. So, you know, there's a little bit of that that knocks their confidence. There's a little bit of the not recognizing the game antics of how to be in the conversation and again taking that personally where men don't operate like that there's also this idea that we know women have a tendency to be interrupted more spoken over ignored more so in mixed communication settings men have a tendency to dominate conversation 75 percent of the time So if women are socialized to make space, men are socialized to take space, it takes extra effort for women to feel confident to put their idea on the table, to put their idea on the table, to hold their idea firm on the table, to claim the idea when it gets stolen and and reappropriated by somebody else two or three times and still not come back to them with the correct appropriation. So there's barrier, 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 barrier. Even for women that I coach and work with that are really confident, and they're no-nonsense players, and they don't have any issues with, you know, wanting to be perfect. They're like, I know what I want to say. I want to say it, and I'm in there all the time. And I still get obstacles where one of my clients, as an example, and this is an example I've got in the book, she was on a board. She's been a board member for a long time, an absolutely incredible operator. She says, just the other week, I was having a conversation with the board, and I said in very clear terms, what we need to be focusing on for the next year are these three things. A, one, two, three. She listed them out. Just three words like opportunities, advancement, and equity, whatever they were. And they went, mmm, there was nodding. The very next guy to speak said, I move emotion. That the next two things we need to work on this year are one, two, three, and restated her ideas. And she looked at him, waiting for the as stated. Yeah, know, by acknowledgement. Yeah. I would like to formally make this an announcement. I just like to formalize it. He didn't look at her. He didn't acknowledge her. He didn't say anything about the fact that it was her idea. Then it was seconded by a second man, seconded by a third man, still none of them looking at her. And they said, okay, motion moved. Now she said, that's fine. I mean, they, great. I'm glad they support my ideas. That's great. It's in the minutes, but it's in the minutes as his idea. It's in the minutes that this was come up by him, no acknowledgement to her, and this is a pattern of behavior that happens all the time. And she said there was no acknowledgement of where that came from. Yeah. Conversation with the chairperson afterwards and said, this is not okay. Why didn't you step in? I can say to I'm blue in the face, hey, that was my idea. (laughs) Yeah. But why are we leaving it to the women? Why are we leaving it to the minority groups? to keep advocating for themselves when it's a structural issue that's come from our societal conditioning that says, hey, leaders have a responsibility here. 
every single person who seconded that had an opportunity to say, oh, as originally stated by, but didn't. The chairperson had an opportunity to say, hey, okay, that's good. Now let's put the acknowledgement here and let's make sure we don't do this in future because this happens to be a pattern of how we talk about and socialise ideas. So many opportunities to break, to challenge that, you know, behaviour that were missed. What a great example and unfortunately not an example in isolation. There are many, many, many examples in this fabulous book, The Gender Penalty. Just going to give a quick plug for that book. But before I do, you spoke about another pocketbook guide, the When Men Lead Women. What's that book? When Men Lead Women. I'm glad you asked, Sally. (laughs) (laughs) Here's one I prepared earlier. Well, this book came about... Actually, in the middle of writing The Gender Penalty, I stopped and I wrote this pocketbook. It just takes an hour to read. It's it's really quite quick. And I did it because I'm running lots of programs for women at work. I'm talking with leaders of the women in the program, managers, executives sponsoring the program. So a lot of men involved in this program because remember, it's not we're not fixing women here. We're fixing a societal problem. We require all hands on deck for this. So as much as we're equipping women to navigate the uneven landscape, we need to educate men around what that landscape is. Remember, tall shopper, short shopper. So as part of those conversations, I realized I was getting asked a lot about what's really going on. I'm not sure I really understand this. And so I wrote this book with a goal to answer the key questions that men were worried about, concerned about, trying to navigate as a male leader in this new equality landscape when they didn't feel it was safe to ask, you know, without looking like they weren't supportive, they weren't allies, or they were just downright sexist. I absolutely love it. So when men lead women and the gender penalty available on Amazon and on Annalie's website, AnnaliBlundell.com. Annalie has been absolutely fascinating. I hope you come back later in the series and talk to us more about influence in the boardroom because I feel like we could talk about this for hours and hours thanks for joining us today yes I look forward to it thanks Sally thanks very much for tuning in I'd love to know what you thought of this episode and what you took away from it I'd also love to know what topics you're interested in hearing about in the future and which experts you think should be featured on this board success podcast If you enjoyed listening, please share with your colleagues who might also have an interest and make sure you click to follow or subscribe to be advised of our upcoming episodes. In the meantime, if you're a leader or a successful executive and you're looking to launch your board career, or if you're an established non-executive director and you're ready for the next level, check out the resources we have available for you on the website at boardcoachinginstitute.com.au. Until next time, here's to your board success.